Hello, and welcome to Who Books That with Harrison Greenbaum. I am your host, Harrison Greenbaum. Thank you so much for joining me uh, today, Wednesday at 7 p.m. The show is every Wednesday at 7 p.m. If you're on the East Coast, it's 4 p.m. If you're on the West Coast, um, you also download uh, or watch old episodes at whobookstat.com. Whobookstat.com also has a link to Apple Music where you can download all of the episodes. We are up to date now. All 22 previous episodes are available on Apple Music. Uh, you can download them as a podcast. A huge thank you to everybody who has downloaded the podcast and left a review. If you leave a five-star review, that really helps make the uh, the podcast more visible uh, on, on the iTunes and Apple Music service. Uh, as of now, we are in the top 100 podcasts in five different countries in the performing arts category, which is pretty nuts. So we got Japan, Germany, uh, and a couple other countries we didn't fight against in World War II, uh, United States, UK, and Canada. Uh, so thank you so much. I really appreciate that. So keep uh, keep those coming. Those reviews are really, really helpful um, and uh, I'm much appreciated. Uh, and you also follow me on social media at Harrison Comedy. And last but certainly not least, uh, a huge uh, thank you uh, one more time to uh, president of the IBM, the International Brotherhood of Magicians, who sponsors and presents this show, uh, Alexander, who uh, has passed the reins to uh, Stephen Bergazzi, who was a guest on our program last time, a surprise guest for uh, John Derenbos. Um, so a huge congratulations both to Alex and to Steven. If you'd like to join this incredible uh, institution and organization, which makes programming like this possible, just go to magician.org slash join the IBM slash join. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it join the IBM has dashes between the join the IBM. So it's magician.org slash join dash the dash IBM slash join. Uh, I am so excited to bring uh, our, our guest uh, today. He is somebody uh, I have had the honor to perform with somebody I've had uh, the thrill to hang out with. He was uh, the front man for the popular band Possum Dixon. He was the bass player for that band. Uh, he is a two-time winner of Stage Magician of the Year from the Academy of Magical Arts. He is a, an incredible performer. Uh, he has a, a book out, this great book called Strange Cures, which is available on Amazon and uh, anywhere you can get books. This is a fantastic book. His lecture notes are fantastic. Uh, he's here for us now. I could not be more excited to be able to hang out with this guy. Make some noise. Get excited from your home or apartment. It's Rob Zabrecki, everybody. How you doing? Hey, everybody. I'm good. How are you doing, Harrison? Nice to see you. And nice to see you, too. Uh, I was going to kick this off with a quote. Um, I know one of your favorite books is The Catcher in the Rye. Is that correct? It is, yes. Uh, Holden Caulfield had a quote in the book, and he said, I'm sick of just liking people. I wish to God I could meet somebody I could respect. And I think that is a, uh, a good quote to describe how I feel about you and magic. <laughs> Sometimes there's a lot of people I like in magic, but the people that I, I legitimately respect and are doing uh, you know, incredible and unique things for the art form, you definitely fall into that category. Um, how has your quarantine been so far? Uh, so far, so far, so good. Uh, I haven't you know, been leaning on the side of being really safe and cautious about everything, you know, food coming in and out, um, exercising in my backyard, um, taking online yoga classes, which uh, you, you are quite familiar with, I know, because we, last time I saw you, I think you were in your yoga yoga shorts. That's uh, right, that's right. And, uh, and in some ways, kind of, you know, enjoying hunkering down and spending a lot of time at home with my, with my wife and three dogs that uh, I love very much, so. And I feel like it's one of your routines that you're, I think, really well known for is is your version of of Dyson Men 
the hug hug kill trick which i think now now uh, every version of that even the hug is a kill right yes even the hug <laughs> is a kill <laughs> yes exactly have you thought about what your act is going to look like uh post corona do you think you're going to have to make any modifications uh i haven't really thought about it to be honest no um i i've always thought about magic in terms of in one pieces things that i can just do so, you know so i love silent magic i love i love performing to music where there's you know it's just me in a spotlight and i don't have to worry about the variables of having you know uh spectator you know situations which greatly vary and i and i like but i i like i like the control of knowing that like okay this this is something that i can do just for the camera and obviously in quarantine i've I've re-examined all, all the things that work just for performing in this space. Um, so I guess in, in some in some in some ways I have thought about it, but I mean it's so hard to say how what, what's gonna you know what's gonna happen to the the, the state of you know being a, a, a live performer. You know. Yeah, I mean let's let's start all the way back from the beginning. Uh, your book uh, Strange Cures. The title alludes to something that happened to you when you were a kid. Can you tell us what the strange cure was and why you needed it? Yeah, sure. Um, so, I I was uh, I was around seven or eight when I started getting a really bad case of, of warts uh, on on my fingers, and eventually they they spread all across my hands. So I had about almost fifty of these of these warts, and uh, go to the doctor, I'd get them burned off, and um, it, nothing worked. Uh, I went to Scotland when I was in sixth grade, sixth going into seventh with my family. It's my first big trip. I grew up in, in Burbank, California, not far from where I'm at now. And on that trip, uh, my, my great aunt Nan uh, looked at my hands and, and she said, there's a cure for those warts. All you need to do is go down to the River Dune and dunk your hands in cow dung every day for two <laughs> weeks and the warts will go away. Uh, so as a as a you know twelve year old, I didn't know if she was putting me on or not, but I had had about had it with this plague of warts that really made me self conscious and uh, you know really kind of like kind of squeamish on other kids. And when they did see the warts, they were freaked out by them. And it was I was, I was a bit of an outcast because of those warts. So any I was willing to try anything. Right. <laughs> uh, I ended up kind of wandering down to the River Dune and waited for a cow to take a dump. And then <laughs> against all odds, I'm like, what do I what do I really have to lose here? And the answer was nothing, uh, except for my what little pride I had. Uh, <laughs> but I, I dunked him in there and kind of just did what she said. I let the, the, the dung soak and, and dry on my hands like like hot clay. For 10, 12 minutes. By the way, this is 7 p.m. on the East Coast, so I do hope nobody's eating dinner while watching this this uh, this video stream at the moment. I know one person is. Shout out to Beverly Key. Sorry, Bev. I know this is not a good <laughs> thing. Um, anyway, uh, rinsed off the, the dung and repeated that for about two weeks. And then I came back to California, and believe it or not, those warts, each and every one of them, shrunk back into my hands, and I entered the seventh grade uh, as, you know, what, what would I become a, a popular teenager, which was amazing because it was a complete transformation from being a shy introverted kid from having these warts to going to, to, uh, to not having them. And that article that you just showed a second ago was the first time my name was ever in print 
<laughs> when 1980 comes and uh, the warts go away and, and this small town, Patton of Scotland, about an hour outside of Glasgow, writes this article, Robbie's Strange Cure. And it's all about my, my trip there uh, with my family and how people thought I was kind of nuts because it was in a small town like Patna, which is a small working farm town, you know, an English, an American kid walking through this, the town with, with, you know, crap mitts, <laughs> yeah. a bit of a stir and it did. So uh, it was kind of, a, it was this amazing transformation. So I also had that article as like a little memento from, from my kind of, from my youth, I guess. And when it came around, time to writing this book, I always thought, oh, the name's going to, you know, the, the title would be Robbie Strange Cure. It's a pretty good title. Um, until I had a, a, a chat with my my good pal, Derek Delgadio, amazing writer and magician. And he had read some of the passages. He's like, no, the strange cures. You've had more than one cure. There's been more than one of these things. And your life's changed. And, and to, to, to broaden the, the, the focus a little bit, or broaden the, the span of, of what, your story's about isn't about this one incident with these words, which is a really good story, but why not make it just strange cures? And um, that really resonated with me and I stuck with it. And one of the other medical things was something that was sort of a, I think there was a 33-year gap between uh, the medical issue and the medical cure, which was that you were shot when you were a kid. I didn't have the bullet removed until, I think it was 33 years was the period that elapsed between uh, the incident and the removal. Um, yeah. I guess let's start backwards, which was at, at what point in those 33 years did you realize enough is enough, I need to get it, get the bullet removed? And then let's go backwards and find out why you had to get it removed in the first place. Well, the first thing I'll say is the bullet and the warts had nothing to do with each other. <laughs> um, you were just very unlucky. <laughs> well, I did. But I've been very lucky though, too. So That's right. I can't, it doesn't all, the scale, it all, everything kind of balanced out. Um, but what I had, the warts were very unique and special uh, in their own way because most kids didn't have that many warts and mine were a result of not eating any vitamin C. Uh, and later I ended up you know, becoming a vegetarian and taking care of the health issues and started eating fruits and vegetables. But the other thing that I had that most kids didn't have uh, was an uncle who was an FBI impersonator. <laughs> right, uh, so he told you he was in the FBI, but was not in the FBI. Well, he wasn't, he was none of it. He was just, he was a machinist. He was, he was a lot, he was a pathological liar. who was crazy. And he had my family convinced that he did work for the FBI, um, secret service nonetheless for the FBI, really weird. Um, <laughs> and, and carried around firearms with him. And, and when I was uh, 12, he bought me a, a Winchester 25 caliber rifle and ended up shooting me with that rifle uh, during kind of a target practice session. So he was pretty mentally unstable and um, the bullet was lodged in my arm yeah, for 33 years. It, by the time that we got home and my parents were informed about it, it was kind of stuck in there and it, it was going to have to stay in for like, say, a couple of weeks for it to heal. And they were going to go and take it out. Well, they never got it. They never took it out. They just let it sit. And I let it sit. And decades of kind of bad dreams and being haunted by this metal bullet in my arm, I finally was like, enough's enough. You know, I was in my... 40s and I started feeling I get like a pinched nerve in my arm and sort of have bad dreams about it and occasionally if I slept on it wrong I would like would it was it was pain it could be painful you know and and mentally painful as well so back to Burbank right where I uh you know right where I was born 1968 boom they lodged the went in and cut the bullet 
uh, cut an arm, uh, a hole in my arm, and took the bullet out. Now it sits on my desk as a little reminder of my Uncle Ed. <laughs> did did your uncle impersonating an FBI agent prepare you for uh, interacting with magicians who imp impersonate professional magicians? Completely. <laughs> he 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 was a master at at deception and fooling people and and kind of like lived in this alternate reality. And later when I got into magic and in acting for that matter, that's kind of, you know, that was definitely something that I went, Oh, he was doing this for fun in, in his own delusional mind. But like there was a, there was a craft to it. So it was, it was helpful. Yeah. And one of the things that I noticed about the, uh, the, the cow poop story mm -hmm. is that in it, I do feel like there is the genesis of, of your creative process which is you don't know if it's going to work. You, you know, your aunt is telling you it's going to work, but there's no, there's no medical knowledge to say that sticking your hands in the poop is going to cure what, what ails you. Um, but you commit to it hundred percent. You do it. You keep doing it even if you're not sure it's going to work. And, uh, and it's that combination of commitment, experiment, and risk that ends up yielding a good reward. Um, and I feel like that's something that's uh, very present in your work. Do you think there's like a connection between that? A hundred percent. I mean, I've always, Kind of you know left without the net i didn't go to college uh i graduated high school barely um and had it some conceit that i could be a professional but there there i am at 16 uh you know, my first garage band uh also right in burbank um with this i with this conceit that i could be a, a musician and have a band and tour and make records and do stuff that i dreamed about as a kid and nothing and i wasn't naturally talented. I wasn't somebody who was like some virtuoso. It was like, oh, it was a no-brainer. I was going to be a you know rock and roll star. It was just some wild fantasy that I had like any other kid had, like my friend down the street when we'd play air guitar to like Cheap Trick and Kiss records when we were little kids. But I believe, I somehow believed in myself that I could do that and I'd made it happen. You know, my other bandmates did go to college and while they were kind of getting their degrees, I was doing all the heavy lifting, getting getting flyers, Xerox, and going out in the clubs and sort of doing all the things that you gotta do to promote yourself, especially in the kind of late 80s underground world kind of scene uh, community that I came out of in LA. It was a real DIY thing. Everything you did, you had to do it on yourself. And to do that, you had to believe in what you're doing. So that carried on. There's some part of me that, that thinks that I can do this stuff. and <laughs> That led to my, when I got into magic, it was the same thing. I just went, oh, that's super interesting. I can't think about anything else but this art form now, magic, let's just say. And it became such an obsession that I just thought, yeah, I can. I think I can do this. Well, one of the things I wanted to touch on, because I, I think one of the things that strikes me about you is you're very cool. I, I you bring up a very cute dog. Hello. This is Gypsy, everybody. <laughs> Hi. I'm always happy to have animal guest stars. Uh, that, that is a consistent thing. Oh, uh, hello. Um, one of the things I think uh, people would say you're cool. You are you're actually uh, prom king, which is uh, usually reserved for a, a cool kid in, in high school. Um, but one of the things I think that usually the definition of cool is the absence of caring. Um, it seems effortless. And yet on the other hand, everything that you've done, your music, your magic, uh, even your acting where you were, you know, Sweep, sweeping the floors and cleaning bathrooms in order to afford acting classes was very, very hard work, very diligently done. So how do you balance that? Like how, how, how do you have the cool, not caring, 
demeanor, like, uh, or not, not caring, but this, this, the, the detachment, the coolness, well, other hand, working your, your butt off. Well, I mean, I, I can't really talk to like being cool. If you think I'm cool or anyone does, that's amazing and neat. And, and that's like a kind of a gift, I guess, in life to, if someone <laughs> ignores you that way, cause that's the coolest to... answer. Cool people don't say they're cool. Yeah, you can't, right? You can't. It's, <laughs> it's just not, you can't really, you can't, you can't subscribe to that. But what I can believe in and know about is, is hard work. And like, I've always known that I'm, I'm average on every, just about every level across the board when it comes to anything. And when I want something, I got to work, I got to work probably harder in some ways than, because the way that my brain, I think my brain works strangely plus um I've, I've 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 blown some brain cells along the way um i know we're, <laughs> you know don't it uh anyway so i i feel like i need to work su super hard to get anything done and and so that's to diligently sort of figure out how to do something is different than just like going to see the ramones or whatever well, I think that's I think that's a really good lesson because there are a lot of magicians. There's even in the comments, uh, one of the first comments that popped up as soon as we went live uh, was from where is he? He's coming up. I uh, there we go. Alan Sphinx saying, uh, "Hi Rob, you are my inspiration." Um, and I think you, you you have inspired a lot of magicians. Um, and I think one of the dangers uh, of watching an act that is as fully formed and polished and as good as yours is that they don't see all the hard work that goes into it, so they don't know they don't know that it is achievable. It seems almost unachievable because you can't start from zero and then get to Zabrecki immediately. It requires years of, of work. Exactly. Anything that's hard takes a, a long, long, long time. You know that. I mean, you've got a solid, you know, your act, your act is, is so well fully formed and amazing for so many different reasons. And yeah, I doubt you just popped in, you know, you just, you don't just fall into this stuff. It's really hard. And, and like for anyone to, to say that is is a is a huge thing. Thank you, Alan. That's that's I'm I'm glad to you know uh, to know that I inspired you in some way. But man, I mean, like I say, when I came to magic, especially, I was it was you can ask any of my friends who knew me back then. I was not a fish to water. It was really 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 hard for me. I was not a gifted, guy. you know. I didn't just start doing double lifts, you know, out of the gate. It was like. I had to really sit down and think about this stuff and had a lot, a lot, a lot of help. But what I did have was a burning desire to do it. And I think that's like, that's the trick with anything is you, you have to want it so bad and know that like you got to breathe it and live it and, and want it and almost put no boundaries on how hard you're going to go to do that. And for me, that's, I, I've always wanted to be a performer, you know, so when, it, when I made the transition from music into magic and, and even magic into acting in some ways, it's, 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 all, it's all built on the same basis of it's, it's hard work, it's technique, it's every day. You know, I won't even tell you the insanity of what I, like, of, of how I rehearse. I mean, I will tell you if you want to hear. But like, yeah, the way well, I hear I you wake up at like 6 a.m. every day and practice diminishing records, then there's a dance sec section to warm up. On a good day, yeah, during COVID, uh, things have gotten a little, the, the, the lines are getting a little fuzzy, but if I know I've got a performance coming up, believe me, I'm going to, I want it to be right. I, I want it. I want to, I want to do good. I want people to like me. I want to do hit these. I want to hit the marks that I'm, I'm aiming for. And there's obviously in magic, you get to a point where there's, 
only so much you can do. You, you learn all your moves, you can learn the script, you can get the script in your bones, but it's not until you're out there in the trenches talking to an audience that you start connecting with them. And obviously, as you know, from being a, you know, a, a comedic improv performer, that's where the magic comes in. Furthermore, in playing live music, you gotta be out there and connect with an audience and especially uh, in acting when you're talking to another performer, you can learn your lines, but there's no, you can't learn a line read and then go in and somebody's, they're expecting someone to cry and they end up laughing and slapping you in the face. You, you've got, got to be able to, you've got to talk to that and you've got to do it fast. And how do you do that? Well, you know your lines, you know, you, you know you, you're so prepared that you're ready to sort of like go to battle and then it becomes fun. But anything less than that, I'm in a state of panic, I'm sweating, um, I want to tear my shirt off, run down the street, and like jump into traffic. Like that's those are the stakes for me. It's 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 crazy how how important performance is to me. It shouldn't be so important. No, I think I think it shows. I, I there's something that I always tell people when they talk about scripting, which is you can't go off roading if you don't have a map. Uh, the, the only reason that I can go veer off of my script is because I know exactly how to get back on the road. Right. I didn't know that I would. Be able to, I just. I would never come back. I, I once opened for Richard Lewis and I remember it was a weird performance because he never came back to some of the punchlines. So it just oh, felt right. like a premise would lead him to the next premise to the next premise. And you had an audience kind of thinking like, wow, if he nests everything at the end, it's going to be spectacular. And it kind of almost never did. Did he, But did it, but at the end, did he, was he able to loop it back in? Oh no, I think he was just uh, really, really distracting himself. Oh, okay. Well, he's he's on his own. Richard, Richard Lewis is kind of on his own. <laughs> Island, anyway. So that and he's know. earned it. He's definitely earned that. Earned yeah. that. Um, but you mentioned traffic, and I think that's a good thing to the note because it also involves you jumping in, into traffic. Um, you were asked by uh, John Lovick about uh, originality and magic, and you said, "I see so many people doing so many of the same routines and the same stock thing they got from a magic shop, or they've stolen this person's thing because it works for that person, but it doesn't work for them. It drives me crazy. It makes me want to smash all my props." and run down the street and jump into traffic. Precisely. So one thing, should we be nervous about you being near traffic? It feels like a repeated theme. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe. <laughs> also, I, I think, think with, as, long as, I, as long as I don't pay too much attention to, you know, other other magicians, because what do I, at the end of the day, what do I care, right? It's like, if that's their, <laughs> here's what I've learned, I've grown since then. That's their problem. If somebody wants to be mindless and, and, and copy and paste Derek Hughes's act or his demeanor and then go on national TV and do that. I, I have no control over that. I don't. And I don't, and I, and I, I've, 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 I've since learned to let go and it's, I feel more free because of it. But for those who are watching who want to do the right thing, um, you, you've also written a whole thing on, on essentially scripting, originality, theatricality, incredible lessons uh, in these lecture notes. Um, but you come, into, you come into magic as a musician, you come in what we consider relatively late. A lot of magicians have that story where they're five years old and that's when they start doing magic and they, it's a lifelong thing. You you accidentally end up in a magic shop because the air conditioned, right? Is that is that the, the genesis of, of your love for magic? Correct, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I know, I had zero interest in magic. It, 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 had, it had almost an anti effect on me because when I was a little boy, uh, I was at a school assembly and a, a Ronald McDonald uh, character came to our school to tell us about the virtues of eating good food like McDonald's and getting up. Oh, a, a great lesson. 
I know it's really crazy when I think back on it. And then invited me on stage to do a, a, a little magic trick and he, and he poured evaporated milk into my head. And it was very embarrassing and mortifying. Not so much, of, not, not that he was doing anything that was that crazy because he, he was just doing what he was there to do. But it greatly embarrassed me and I really kind of relegated magic to, to being, you know, cartoony and clowny and not, I didn't see the art form in it until, uh, until much later. And then, yeah, these years later, I'm in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, and I, I stumble into Kenza's Yogi Magic Mart because I'm looking for an air conditioner. <laughs> I just wanted to get out of the heat. It was a hot was he actually Indian or was he, was this a fully culturally appropriated magic shop? Uh, <laughs> That's a good question. It was just no. It's just standard <laughs> magic shop. Uh, it was it was just standard magic shop right there in downtown. It's my guy with a ponytail claiming to be a guru. <laughs> I know it has a funny name, and it's not, since gone now. Um, Kenzo's Yogi Magic Mart. But it was a it was like a real Twilight Zone episode walking into this empty magic shop, as you can imagine, in the middle of summer downtown Baltimore. Not a lot of people buying magic, um, but I went in to cool off. And once I kind of got my head around the idea that I didn't want to just be loitering in this this man's shop and wanted to buy something. Um, I ended up buying what was my first magic trick um, that I performed oddly that night on stage, which was kind of amazing um, that I had the, the wit about me to not vanish the small growth, green silk handkerchief that he had sold to me, but to vanish uh, a wrapped prophylactic from, from the audience. <laughs> and here's the pictures to prove it. This is me. I can't believe, and it's amazing. I can't believe these pictures exist because some somebody obviously <laughs> took them. But there I am, uh, whole twenty eight years old, uh, playing the bass. I ask someone for a, a wrapped condom. They throw it on stage. Middle picture. I'm showing it, and then uh, in that far picture, it's gone. And my, I got to say, my 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 left hand does look pretty relaxed, which is, in retrospect, <laughs> I, I I imagine it feeling like it was probably weighed like a thousand pounds for. Magician will know why, but um, it, it actually looks pretty good. So anyway. And from that point forward, you started incorporating magic tricks into your your rock performances. How does the how does the audience react to that? Because you, you, you have an audience that doesn't know you're gonna, they're going to be seeing magic at all. They're expecting uh, Possum Dixon. So what 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 is what are your first audience's reactions to that magic? Uh, well, doing one making a condom vanish is novel. It's it's maybe clever and cute for an aside between two songs, and it can make somebody laugh. But I took it to an extreme of putting a 15-minute experimental noise jam <laughs> in the middle, where I was doing like fire pans and delights and paper flowers. Anything <laughs> I could find in a magic shop, it was a blinking ropes. It was crazy, and all people would do would they tilt their heads and look like, "What is this?" I bought a ticket to hear you know, this band's music, this, these certain songs, and I was having none of it. And um, one night, Peter Buck from R.E.M. was at one of our shows in Seattle, Washington, and, and afterwards, I was talking to him, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of fishing around, like, I kind of wanted to hear what he, you know, you want, I admired him greatly, I was kind of waiting for, a, not, I wouldn't say a compliment, but like maybe a good show would have been like perfect, you know, fine even. And, right. he, <laughs> and he and he turns to me and goes, you know, I've seen a lot of people do a lot of things, but never seen anybody do that before. And that was it. And so, uh, my little magic show, I don't think went over so great with uh, with members of REM. 
But that was kind of it for like everybody was looking at me like, what are you doing? And, uh, and all I could do was think, I can't not do this. Um, right. <laughs> I, I, I had an obligation to a record company to be on tour and to go out and promote, uh, you know, a couple records. And all I wanted to do was do magic. And and later, when I was in the studio with Rick Ocasek from The Cars uh, in New York, this is at uh, Electric Lady Studios in the West Village, 1997, all I was, every break we had, every time I could put the bass down, I would run off to the magic store to uh, floss a horn in or tan. Yeah. Uh, there's a place called ABC Magic in the 90s that was there um, up by uh, Empire State Building, really cool big magic shop, long gone. Anyway, all I could do was obsess on go these places and just buy stuff, watch any, any, any trick anybody did, I would just, I would, it didn't matter, as you know, getting into magic. <laughs> You just buy it, and then you, you later on figure out that it's probably not for you. But that's where I saw, I saw the Diminishing Cards perform first there in New York uh, with, with Tommy, with my wife, and, and this guy. I wish I knew who it was. He was performing, did it um, like a Sunday show, um, and it was an amazing performance. And I bought it, and then I came back and sort of um, incorporated that trick into what I do. And um, it's been a staple ever since. Well, one thing, we're going to get back to that in just a second, because I want to ask, because some of the tricks in your act are classic, but you do it in, obviously, a way nobody else on the planet is doing it. And, and I think that process is really interesting. Um, but one of the posters I dug up of Possum Dixon is very magic-y. Um, did that happen uh, with, with your interest in magic in mind at that point? Not or was that a weird coincidence? Totally weird coincidence. Um, and and um, I... The other coincidence about that poster is that artist, Camille Garcia, which I haven't seen that in a while, um, she went on to become a famous artist. And that poster now, if, if it shows up on eBay or whatever, it's it, it, it the, the value in the poster being a Boston Dixon, maybe it's worth 20 bucks, but because it, Camille Rose Garcia did it, it, it's 120, you know, like she's she went on to do really great stuff. That was a Friday the 13th show. She just, uh, she ran with it. So uh, I don't know. I'm glad she did. And one of the things too, and, and you, you define a little bit punk rock in Strange Cures, and part of that is sort of a being rebellious, having a uh, non-caring attitude in a way, uh, anti-authority, uh, like a Holden Caulfield from Catherine and the Rye. Uh, so doing magic when they expect you to do music might be the most punk rock thing you could possibly do. Uh, and one of my favorite quotes from the book is, you said, reinventing myself from musician to magician is the most punk rock thing I've ever done. I stand by that. and But... I got to define, I, I need to define punk because yeah. it's got, it, it, that word has gotten very muddied in, in, in popular culture over, over the years. By, by punk, I'm, I'm not talking about mohawks and safety pins and purple hair. I'm talking about an ethos of thinking for yourself and being your own person and coming to terms with the fact that most of the information that you get in life is not right. And it, and it can often be very distorted. In my case, having an uncle who was an FBI impersonator was <laughs> like, oh, this, so this is what, does this happen everywhere? Is this the reality of the world? You know, like I, I had to like figure out that authority figures weren't always who I thought they were gonna be. And they turned out to be very different people than that. And so by punk, I'm meaning like by taking in, you know, whatever reality you're in and going, what's my take on this? What's my stand? And how do I really feel about it? And do I have an artful way of reflecting this against the world? That is what punk means to me. 
And I think also that that's something magic needs more of in the sense of most people, and I, I've lectured on this, but the idea that people, they buy the trick and they maybe modify it and then they shove it right in their act, which is not a thing you see in other art forms. And do you think the fact that you were writing your own music about things that were very important and internal to you, uh, do you think that informed your magic process uh, and, and sort of pushed you into that direction of originality and creating your own stuff from scratch? hundred percent. When I, when I first went to the magic castle uh, in the, in the mid late nineties, I was seeing um, people that were very sort of punk in their own, in their own ways. And I'm talking about even, even people like Mike Caveney, Tina Leonard, Chris Hart, John Levick, Fitzgerald, people that were able to sort of take, and all, and all those people in their own ways did tricks that not all of them, but, but did material that was, widely available to, in, in at least Tarbell, let's just say, in, in certain magic books. And they were able to reinfuse these tricks with point of view and with story and with character that you go, oh yeah, something magical just happened, but what? Who, it's almost like it was secondary to the character. Like John Carney always talks about that. He says, I want people to remember me more than they do my magic effects. and. I've been I've been conscious of that. It's not something that I like. I don't demand it in my performances because you can't. It's it's a it's something that you can't. Uh, well, you can't bank on that. You can hope that that happens, but hmm. at the end of the day, they might be like, "Oh yeah, that guy just did the shrinking cards. That's it." Like you don't know what people are gonna you know what they're gonna walk away with, but you can you can greatly stack the odds in your favor by having story and character and really believing who you are when you're going out there. But they will walk away with, oh, that was a really interesting performer or performance. Yeah, and I think when people describe your diminishing cards, they might not even refer to the cards. They might say, you know, the thing with the dancing, which I think is one of the striking things about that. Yeah. Um, when 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 the character of Odd Man, which I think I think is that the right way to refer to the, the Zabrecki on stage is is the Odd Man. Sure. When Odd Man is dancing. Does he know he's being silly, and does Rob know he's being silly, or do both be are both people taking it very seriously? Oh yeah, no, he he is putting on the dance of a lifetime. He's going, he's at the talent show, and he's doing the best. He's he's interpreting all of these dances that he's seen uh, and absorbed on on television and old films, and he's throwing it right back to you, putting on the best performance you know, that he thinks is is right. Um, as as the whole performance of the odd man character is that it's Herman Munster. It's, it's, he thinks he's normal and everything in his world is totally straight. And all of you people out there are completely nuts. <laughs> and so with that thesis, like if that, with that in the characters, is the characters kind of like in that mindset, it's really easy to look through a magic book and go, Oh, I'm going to try this routine. I, I'm, I'm attracted to this. And then write a script based on with that, with that thing in mind, like um, beauty in the darkness is another sort of big theme that I kind of wrap my my head around when I'm writing material for my show, and uh, that's that becomes really easy to sort of do that. Um, so I always try to find an, an angle when I'm writing to find, you know, um, pretty things in, in in ugly dark places. I love that because I, when I always describe the two kinds of acts that you can be, it's either you're normal and the world is crazy or you're crazy and the world is normal. But I've never, because I, I like, I, I wouldn't consider my, I, in my mind, I'm uh, a normal person 
trying to comment on the crazy world, how crazy the world is around me, which is like the stand-up comedian mode of thinking. But I never thought of, I, I always thought, oh, of course, Odd Man is crazy and the world is normal. That's the act. But to Odd Man, he is normal and the world is crazy. So it depends on who's, who's talking and who's describing the act. And so I've never that's thought about that. I love that. That's a good point. The, the prettier the girl, the more oddly strange and exotic she is. Oh, where do people look like this? Like, you know, a blonde looking, you know, sort of, you know, the most average woman can, can be like the most exotic bird to me. Um, and that and that creates a certain amount of like curiosity in the audience's part. We're like, what is he? How is he not seeing what we're seeing? And I think that's part of the part of the fun, you know. And one of the things that we alluded to a little bit is, uh, so you meet your now wife, Tommy, uh, at the at the Viper Room, where you performed as a musician. By the way, uh, a weird quirk, I don't know if we've talked about this, but I think I was the first person to do stand-up and magic in the Viper Room. This is a very old picture of me without a beard at Ooh, the Viper Room. I love it. Oh my God, that's amazing. That's wow. me uh, uh, looking, I don't know why I look so confused in this photo. Maybe I, I'm wondering why they're taking the photo. Um, wow. That's amazing. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I don't know anybody that's. Uh, you're the first person that I've known of who's you know uh, filled that slot. What? When were you there? It looks like it was a lot, quite a long time ago. That was 2010. I had to. I had to literally reboot uh, and I had to find an old laptop in order to locate the photo because yeah. it didn't migrate over to my current laptop. Amazing. Love it. Yeah. I made a very poorly timed joke about uh, River Phoenix that I think did not go over super well in the Piper Room. Yeah, that, that <laughs> is, uh, that's some sacred ground, I think, there, yeah. still. still. Uh, but you meet your wife uh, at the Viper Room. Uh, she becomes your first magic partner, your Griffith and Clementine. Um, uh, she's also the person that takes you to the Magic Castle. And so one of the things uh, that, that is throughout your work is sort of collaborating, listening to other voices. She, uh, as much as she was also part of the act, even when she's not on stage with you, she's uh, somebody that you thank in the book and credit with a lot of. Um, so can you talk a little bit about sort of the collaborative process and what uh, using outside voices in order to to help what you're doing? Sure. I mean, um, just to, to to talk to that picture a little bit and the, the, the genesis of that is I didn't know what I was getting into with magic. It was we I fell into it and she was amenable to kind of having an act out of the gate and and with zero performance background. I was the one who had been on in the band, made records and stuff. And so we did about 20 shows as Griffith and Clementine. And I think um, she came to the- And your first show, by the way, was very high profile. Most magicians ease their way into magic, but you were on a very big show when you when Griffith and Clementine debuted, right? Big mistake, yeah. In front of the Hollywood elite, like the coolest people in Hollywood in, as far as bands go. And packed house at the Roxy Theater up the street from Viper Room. And uh, we went over, I would say not great. And, and people were kind of scratching their heads. Like that's the guy from Possum Dixon. What's he doing? And do, why is he doing, is this a joke? Like it was because we just didn't have years of stagecraft and I was still like figuring out how delights worked. Um, <laughs> so there was that. Um, anyhow, pretty quickly, Tommy realized that she did not want to pursue uh, the life of a, of a, of a performer, but was really good and just as creative as anybody I worked with as as a writer, you know, producer, director. So she jumps behind the curtain and starts like writing some of my what I would consider like um, staples of, of my act and, and stuff that's become I've become pretty well known for and been hired 
to go to other countries so I can kind of peek behind the curtain and look at them just so they can get this certain laugh because of a joke that she, she thought would be funny. And so we just started kind of riffing on um, the stupidest things that, we <laughs> that ended up kind of being funny and working um, in, in my act. And, and great, it's been a great like 20 year collaboration. We're going strong and it's now it's just like the more, the more stupid and out there that we want to, that our ideas are the more they seem to work which is really great so there's there's been a real evolution to it and it's been really fun and at no point is it, it felt like it's stagnant you know even though i still perform diminishing cards regularly in some of those routines there's things that i do to make them interesting and exciting each time to reinvent them and i don't want to do as much as i like to in my act script you know script sort of as verbatim as possible I find new ways to interpret myself and I realize I'm aging. My audience is aging. It, it, new people are coming into it. It's this, it's this moving thing and you have to really respect that. And I feel like uh, every couple of years, I always renew the idea of who I think I am and what, what I'm trying to do in entertainment and you know, how I'm aging with the art. Cause a lot of people don't in magic and it, they get, <laughs> you get stuck in this one thing. And you're like, you know, a joke that worked 10 years ago at the Viper Room might not be working. You know, the River Phoenix joke, I don't know. If <laughs> no, I don't think it ever worked. But no, there's nothing more than I love the the guy who was the 20-year-old sexy magician who's now the fat, not sexy 50-year-old magician, but has not adjusted the act accordingly. And and won't. And right. it's like, that's my act, it's working, you know, and... So there you go. I mean, actors get stuck in there in, in the same thing where they'll, they'll they'll learn a character and they'll get kind of hired to do that and they'll do that their whole career. And you see it, you certainly see it in magic. You in music, there's there's plenty of bands that I toured with that still go out because they're known for a handful of songs and they're basically expected to do those songs and, and you know, it's it's part of kind of who they are. But you know, um, hopefully they find ways to reinvent themselves and still have fun with it. Yeah, and who else have you collaborated with? Like in terms of, have you had directors and uh, people really, I mean, in official capacity also collaborating with? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, John Lovick, next to Tommy, uh, Lovick has been um, right there for me in every uh, in every aspect of my magic career. I, I knew him when I was like really not, a, a, I would say a terrible performer. I'm not just saying that to like, sound self-effacing I, I was not good and he was there to remind me of that uh, <laughs> and still, and still well actually uh he's here to remind you of it again oh gentlemen, it's handsome yeah. jack himself oh what oh oh hello uh you know i'm looking through here and uh i don't see my name anywhere so oh no, uh, no. I, I will tell you that i have it highlighted there's one passage Oh, really? Okay. Well, I haven't gotten to the good part yet. Yeah, then. It's ba back in, by, you know, it's very far down. Oh. Has, he's had a lot of life oh, up until then. You saved the best for last. Okay. I get it. <laughs> um, no, I, I do want to say, actually, since we got it, this book is fantastic. Uh, it is a roller coaster ride. Um, it ends when Rob decides to become a magician. It covers his high school years. He had the stranger. I said, spoiler alert, he becomes a magician. Yeah, yeah he becomes a magician. Sorry, spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, it, it covers his childhood, which, as you know a little bit, you know, starting with getting shot by his uncle, he had one of the craziest childhoods. And then it's the 10 years that he was a rock star and drug addict. Uh, and I said to Rob, 
I said, this book is great. I said, your second memoir is not going to be nearly as good. And he said, oh, God, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Uh, one of the one of my favorite parts, of, there's a Genie article about Rob, a cover story. Yeah. And there's a little description of John Lovick, Handsome Jack, um, which is, uh, John Lovick is not, as they say, everyone's cup of tea. Certain castle members, grown men, have been known to avoid the castle library on nights that Lovick is manning in its place. Uh, uh, the gripes of Lovick never go to the truth or value of his words, though. It is chiefly his reticence and reluctance to issue the expected courtesy, chuckle, or praise for the merely ordinary that causes <laughs> discomfort. So Lovick is most often assailed for an excess of candor. That candor is precisely what Zabrecki values in Lovick's advice. So I, I guess, uh, Rob, uh, uh, Rob, if you want to speak a little bit to this, as well as uh, John, um, the, the value of not sugarcoating it um, and why, uh, obviously, his reputation precedes him, but he is somebody who's, who will tell you whether something is bad or, or good um, without uh, worrying about uh, how that makes you feel, because that's what you need to, to grow as an artist. I'll, I'll speak to that, but I must preface it by saying those are not my words. Those are the guy... Uh, the author yeah, of that book, right. those are yeah. his words. I did not say that. And I don't disagree with him, and I don't think Jack will either. Um, but those those who know Jack uh, know how serious he is about this stuff. And I can't think of anyone who is more serious than Jack. He does not pity the fool. Uh, it's not in his it's not in his DNA to do that, but when he sees something that works, he he can he appreciates it on on a high on a level that few can because he sees he really does see the art in this stuff, and that's what it takes. An art form like magic needs oh that's an awesome photo. I've never seen that. Um, needs needs picture needs needs people like like Jack who are in there to kind of to be straight about it. Derek Delgadio is another guy like that who is extremely, he, he has a great reverence for the art form and he doesn't, he doesn't, um, he doesn't accept some of the levels of where, you know, magic has lived for a long time. And I'm not, you know, no disrespect to anybody, but he's, he's seeing, he's, he does see magic as an art form and he sees it can be a lot, it, it could be, it can go to a lot more places than it's been. That, that's not well said, but you, you can get the, take that idea and run with it. No, I think, I think it's a point well made. I, I also think that just, uh, less people think that that John is, because uh, John, John is an amazing person um, and an amazing talent and an amazing director. Uh, also very patient too. It's, it's, I don't want to make it sound like he's impatient because when you were starting out in Magic, Rob, I believe you paid him, I think the rate was $40 an hour to learn card colleges, that can you talk? Uh, can you talk us a little bit through meeting somebody who, who's paying you for magic lessons, all the way up to becoming a fellow trustee on the board of the Academy of Magical Arts at the same time? That's quite a, a friendship journey. Yeah, there's there's a lot to say there, and I'll try and do it without uh, stretching this out too long. But um, I met. There we go. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the Ooh. dynamic duo. So. Uh, I met Rob soon after he started his interest in magic. When he first started going to the castle, he saw me perform uh, and hired me to give him lessons. And I taught him. Uh, we went through, you know, card college and taught him the basics of magic. And if you had asked me at the time, 
So has this guy got, uh, you know, a, a future in magic? Is there any hope for him? I would have said, not a chance. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll take his $40. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, because he, like, like he said earlier, it was not like a fish to water. Um, he did not have a strong aptitude for it. But I t will tell you what he had is he had uh, a, a desire to get better and a strong work ethic. And there were people, I'm gonna try and do a graphic thing here on the screen. There were people who like, when Rob started out, there were people like were, I'm gonna get over here. Uh, and is that, no, I have to get here. There were people like, they were here in magic and Rob was, Rob was, you know, down here. And over the years, Rob, you know, was going like this and this and the people just doing the same thing, the same thing, the same thing stayed here. And over the years, Rob got up, you know, and then boom, boom, boom. And eventually he was off the charts, one of the most pop popular like magicians, um, you know, uh, in the world because he worked every day and um, he, he gathered people uh, who gave him good advice and he listened to the advice and he incorporated it. It's, you know, it's the old uh, ant and the grasshopper story. And um, back when the castle was still open, I would, you know, give tours with uh, to friends or people who'd never been there. And they would have a, a poster of um, that year's award winners. And Rob, as you know, has won, I think, six awards from the AMA. Is that correct? Six or seven, Bobby? Six. Six. Okay, he's won six awards. And we'd stop and I'd go, these are all the award winners. I go, oh, and here's Rob Zabrecki who won whatever award it is. I said, he was one of my, I was one of his very first teachers in magic 20 years ago. He hired me to give him magic lessons. And now 20 years later, he's won six awards from the Academy of Magical Arts and I've won one. And you know why he's won six awards and I've only won one? Cause he had a better teacher than I did. <laughs> um, but that's what's uh, been great is because Rob is, Rob's really one of the, the world's great performers. And if you've you ever seen him perform music, which occasionally he'll do music shows still, like maybe once a year, he'll book some sort of gig where he's just playing music and you see him do those shows. And he, I will put him right up there with any rock star you can name, Mick Jagger, whoever, I will put him up there as a world-class performer. And he brings that kind of power to his magic in a very twisted, uh, unusual way. Yeah. yeah, it's not fair, Rob. You're not allowed to be that good at that many things. It's not, you got to leave something on the table for the rest of us. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I was really glad I got to catch uh, when I was in LA was you guys did a Peller show where you traded acts. So Handsome Jack did Zabrecki, Zabrecki did Handsome Jack. What is that process like? Because one of the things that was remarkable was the material was so strong, uh, but uh, that you can see, you can see where the other person was in it, but also your characters are so strong and so different that you can see how just putting it through those different lenses changed uh, the material. Um, was that something, um, did, were there things that were unexpected from doing that process of trading acts for a week? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I will say the first thing uh, for me that was unexpected was, uh, we thought it was gonna be a breeze because obviously I know Rob's material better than probably anybody because I've worked with him since day one and back there was a there was about 18 months where rob was doing a regular show at the steve allen theater and you know i directed every one of those shows and so every month we were there tweaking everything so i know rob's material backwards and forwards and he's no, knows mine pretty well yeah there's the there's the man uh and that's the moon from that show and so we thought this is gonna be a breeze 
and he knows my material no problem we'll just walk I, it kicked both of our asses it was it's really really hard to do someone else's act um although uh, so many magicians have tried yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing and so that was the first thing about how hard it is to do so, someone else's uh material and the other thing uh, I'll, I'll throw in before i you know i let rob answer this is here's what we didn't know is um, we were going to do each other's material, each other's acts. But what we didn't know is if we were going to maintain our own personas or also adopt each other's personas. Right. So we rehearsed for a couple of months. And the first month, we would do everything both ways. Uh, we would do the act kind of as each other's personas and then kind of as our own personas. And it worked both ways. They were very different and very interesting in their own way. And so we kept going back and forth. Are we going to swap personas or just material? And we went back and forth. And finally, what we decided was, when I hear a cover song, I don't want the cover song to sound exactly like the original. Right. I, want to hear, I want it to sound like that band. And that's when we decided we're going to maintain our personas, but just do the other person's material. Yeah. And it was interesting because there were people in that audience that did not that weren't familiar with your acts. It was the first time seeing yeah. either of you perform. Um, I, I, and one of the one of the people in the audience who I think might have seen you prior um, was this guy. Yeah. <laughs> was, was it was it doubly nerve wracking to not only be performing for Teller, which is pretty exciting, but to be doing uh, the other person's material? Did that make it harder? Yeah. Yes, it did. Yes. The stakes uh, were through the. It was suddenly like, oh no, this is a disaster. Should we just go back to our own acts? For yeah. a second? You know, like it was. It was pretty um, nerve-wracking, yeah. It wasn't the ideal circumstances for Taylor to see <laughs> us, uh, but he was, uh, and he didn't see our best performance. It wasn't our best audience. He, it was a very quiet crowd. The show right before Taylor came in, raucous audience, the Taylor he saw, they mostly just sat there. Um, so the it was- The show is always amazing. That's always, that's always the running joke is, you should yeah. have been here last week. I think there's a, yeah. a podcast called that. But, but Taylor was, was very kind and it, it was fun. And it was interesting that people who didn't know either of us just thought the act was, thought the show was fine. And they, they thought, oh, fun show with two fun performers, you know? <laughs> well, that speaks to the strength of the material. I mean, Rob, did you, when you took your material back after that week, was there anything different? I mean, I had a greater appreciation for it, having seen Jack perform it and kind of watching him go through the script and sort of like, yeah, I, I think it, I think I did recalibrate it in, in a certain way because I, I, there was a greater appreciation obviously for, for what, for, for what he was doing. Obviously I was doing his acts. I was trying to find all these nuances in, in his material, which he had been, when you do something for 10, 15, 20 years, it's in your blood and bones. When you do something for four months, it's, it's in a, it's in on a certain level, but it's not <laughs> not there. Um, so yeah, I think I think I was able to like step back from it. it was like it was like hearing someone do do a a cover version of one of your songs and go, oh wow, there's a that's a different interpretation of it. And here here I do it again and like oh okay like like it's somehow it's it's in there and it adds to the it added to the the overall. Um, yeah, there's 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 one thing that I I got out of it. One of the oldest tricks in my repertoire been doing it literally since the very first time I performed at the castle, whatever it was, 25 years ago. It's a, it's the win a date with handsome Jack routine. 
and there's a part in the routine where I describe what the date is going to be like. This, you know, woman I bring up from the audience, she gets a chance to win a date with Handsome Jack, and I describe it in a big, elaborate, expensive, expensive date. And I've been doing that same script for like 30 years, but when Zabrecki did it, he like really made the date come alive. He like painted it <laughs> and talked about. I remember it. that. You know, and he, you know, he he was like describe it and it's sort of making it come alive. I went, wow, that's really great. And so I've incorporated just a little bit of that, you know, my, like trying to make it come alive and not just saying we're going to do this and this and this, and then we're going to do this and this and this and this. So that's something I learned from watching him do, you know, that routine. And I think that's, that speaks also to your voices and the, the material that, that you've created, which is that you want to have, a, first of all, be original enough that if somebody else does it, they know it's a cover. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but also to have uh, material so strong that it, it can withhold those kind of changes. Um, and I also just, the, in terms of going back to that punk rock theme of experimental and experimenting, um, that was in the Peller, which is like an experimental venue. Uh, Rob, have you done any other uh, Peller shows? I have. I, I've, I've done uh, a lot of Peller shows and with a lot of performers over over the years. Um, I mean, the, the, the origin of the, of the Peller 15 years ago was that it it was no man's land and the, the castle was not doing good. The, you could go to the Magic Castle on a weekend and there was nobody there. It was really quiet. And it was before Neil Patrick Harris had kind of come in as president and kind of saved the face of magic as, as it is in pop culture and really kind of like created an awareness to it that young people are doing this and it's not this antiquated art form. And, and so I was with a little group called the Unholy Three, uh, um, David Lovery and the drummer from the Pixies, another musician, magician, and my buddy, my good friend Fitzgerald. And so we were going down there and doing shows every weekend in the Peller and kind of like finding our way doing music down there. We were, I was playing guitar and while, while they were doing magic and like David was playing drums, we kind of like started kind of mixing up the idea of what could be done down there. So when they started booking shows in the Peller, I had already collaborated with a lot of people, uh, obviously Jack, and I got to, and, and uh, a cast of, of my best, some of my best friends in, in Magic, including Derek Hughes, David Kovac, John Carney. Um, there's, there's, what's that? Eugene Berger. I got to work with Eugene Berger um, down there. I mean, really like, it was an amazing um, kind of run of, of, of shows that I got to do down there with a lot of people. And, and it's just, it was always really inspiring because you know, you, you, you have that weekend to sort of write, produce, and, and self-direct something that's going to hopefully, you know, make your acts, bring your acts to, together. Um, obviously, what Jack and I did, I would never do again. <laughs> and then <wouldn't that, laughs> any magician, don't do it. Uh, it's, it's far too much work, and, and it'll, it'll drive you nearly crazy. Um, <laughs> but like, for example, with, with my buddy David Kovac, we, we became cousins from distant parts of the the land and it was really funny and it was a christmas show and it was like you got to kind of put all these music cues and really just well i will tell you i it, this this was very difficult to do but i've managed to get a webcam into carpathia itself so what? that i could bring you your cousin from carpathia david oh, wow. oh. Hey. <laughs> oh, oh hi there hi there everybody i just uh, I, I was just sitting here reading um my uh, volume one of card college with my my 40 dollar bookmarks i'm yeah. I'm wondering if you're free anytime soon. For the price of one bookmark, <laughs> I'll go through chapters three through seven with you. Outstanding, yeah. I mean, I felt like somebody should, you know, get you're, a little bit dressed up. 
you dressed down a little bit for this. Did you not know that this was kind of a, you know, a big, big, big to do? Uh, I've been listening. Yes. <laughs> Hi, David. You draw a backwards C. It just looks like somebody's outfit is getting worse. It's a, you have a tie and then a jacket and then just the shirt and then a <laughs> T-shirt. Yeah. You've done very well. well. It's, it's been really fun to listen to this and, uh, and to see some old friends, you know, it's just a delight. So thanks for, um, thanks for doing this, Harrison. It's a lot of fun. Erica Larson's out there. I'm going to give a shout to our good friend Erica, who I got to say has has been the guiding light. Uh, the past yeah. 15 years of the Magic Castle has has taken off and created this space for us to work in in a in a positive way. I mean, look, I know the act that I have is not the most commercial act in the world. And, and, and the types of people that I gravitate towards, including David and handsome, handsome Jack, who both have very unique and special characters who are commercial in their own way. Uh, uh, there's, I love that photo. That's amazing. Um, oh, I've really been embraced by, by Erica and, and, you know, the, the magic community as it is now. And it's really been, she's made it really comfortable you know, for us to kind of feel like we've got, we have this place uh, to do what we love to do. And it's, it's amazing. Yeah. And when David, I guess we can speak a little bit about when you, when you, the first time you met Zabrecki, because based on promo photos alone, it looks like you guys uh, were just in different rooms of the same haunted house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's actually Robin disguise there in the, uh, in the lower right hand corner. And, and, and I'm, I'm inside his hat. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. yeah, I was um, I was a sh in Chicago for you know about a quarter century um, performing, and so I think the first time I met Rob actually might have been when you came through Chicago. Did you come yeah. through Chicago and do a show before they had like the Magic Lounge and all that? You that must have been the first time. For many years, I, w I went through about once a year and did did something there. Yeah, and we met there, and then you you were talking about moving to you were working on the pier uh, in Chicago, and you were talking about coming out west and right. Yeah. right. Yeah, so we decided, well, we'll do a, a Peller show, but maybe we can make it, uh, we'll, we'll get some sort of premise, like we're, we're cousins from the old country, the mountains of Carpathia. We haven't seen each other in, you know, whatever it is, many decades. But tonight is very special because we're going to have a reunion here at the Magic Castle. The only trouble is, growing up, we, we both loved magic. I always thought that magic was splendid entertainment, whereas he always believed his powers were real. So we'll we'll see That's about right. that. And then the first thing he does is show up and cast a spell on me or something along those lines. So. And if, if I may caption this picture, I do know what's under your hat. It's Handsome Jack. Yeah, <laughs> indeed you do. Yes, uh, that's a Biltmore, uh, by the way. So yeah. yeah, only the finest. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, it's just but back to the the community of of the castle and how all of us have been able to come together. It's it's like a global thing. Obviously, Harrison, you know, you're come from from New York. You you you've fit hand and glove into that world. Uh, our good friend Stuart McLeod, formerly of Varian Stuart, came from Aberdeen, Scotland, by way of London, and just fell right into this groove of working in the Peller. And and um, I gotta say, during this pandemic, I, I, I greatly, my appreciation for the community and the club has grown so much. And I, I didn't realize just how much I miss it until like, every, it's, it's almost like every day I, I try to not go on social media is, you know, is, maybe once, once or twice a week is about what I can handle. 
but just in my mind, like when the, the amount of memories and the atmosphere that is provided there and for us to go and feel this great thing, it's amazing. I got to say, having had a previous life in music, sure, there are nightclubs and musicians go to nightclubs, but the warmth of the Magic Castle and the community of Academy of Magical Arts and the library and all of the, all of the sort of um, um, sub, you know, rooms and, and branches that that have, that have grown from that are amazing. And it's a, uh, I've traveled all over the world now doing magic, and everywhere I go, uh, you know, New Zealand, Japan, you name it, people want to talk about the Magic Castle. That's really they want to they want to feel like they're a part of that they want to hear about that community and it's um it's amazing we were, we were experiencing a really nice wave there was a really there was a really great sort of like five year kind of golden period i would say just even a few years ago where everybody was like there was a there was a lot of really interesting you know acts were coming up um and really provocative material and people were kind of like hitting their stride and uh there's not a day that goes by that i don't you know think about it or miss it i can, I've got a story about the community of magic and the Peller and Zabrecki that I'd like to throw in here. Sure. And this and is, by the way, a picture of John and Rob in the oh. bathroom of the Magic Castle. Where they did, uh, one of their first interviews together. It's not, not just the bathroom of the Magic Castle, the ladies' bathroom at the Magic Castle. <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever seen that photo. I, I never have. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so, so this was... I'm going to say 10 years ago, although I don't really know when exactly, but we were doing uh, Rob and me and Delgadio, maybe just the three of us. Derek Hughes might have been involved as well. I'm not sure. We're doing a private show for Mark Mothersbaugh of the band Devo and Mark Mothersbaugh and some of his friends. And, you know, Rob has been a big fan of Devo for years and years. So this was sort of a you know, a really fun gig for us. And quick plug, you can see him on Other Side with Zabrecki. There's an episode. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. So this is a fun gig for all of us and, and it particularly meaningful for, for Zabrecki to perform for Mother's Bond. This was in the Pillar and we had it reserved for this private party. And this was a, just a performance for Mother's Bond, his friends. Nobody else was allowed. And we were waiting for the show to begin. And there's a, a performer from, from Mexico He's known as the half beard man is he's got a beard on this side of his face and this side of his face is clean cut. His last name is Kotkin. Uh, is it his first name Joaquin? Anybody know? I don't remember. Yeah. I think his name is Joaquin Kotkin, is. Uh, you know, and who we all kind of knew vaguely, but um, so he went in to see the show and we went, Oh no, this probably party. So we went to the host who's going to introduce us and says, there's a guy that went in, uh, sorry, but would you go tell him that he's he's not allowed? It's just a private private show. And so the host went in. He was in there for a long time, and he came back out and he goes. Uh, he said he was given permission to see the show, and Delgado and I went. No, he was not given permission to see the show. Go in and tell him he's not allowed to see the show. It's a private show for a private party. So he went back in, came out. You know, five minutes later, and he comes out. And he says. He says Rob told him he could see the show. And so we went, Rob, come over here. And Rob <laughs> over there. Did you tell the guy with half a beard that he could see the show? And Rob went, no, I didn't tell a guy with half a beard he could see the show. And so we went to the host, go in, tell him he can't see the show. So he went in, five minutes later he comes out and the half beard guy comes out and he goes, what's up? And Rob goes, oh yeah, 
I told this guy he could see the show. <laughs> Were you only talking to him in profile? Is that what the confusion came up? That's a man with a full beard. Harrison, I don't judge. I look after little things. If somebody wants to have, a, you know, a, a 50 percentile you know, facial hair or whatever, what do I, I don't even notice that stuff. I, I was looking into this man's eyes. He wanted a seat in the show. The, being the generous Gemini that I am, I'm like, come on this way. And I look past his little, you know. And so a couple of years later, Rob was talking. He goes, hey, do you remember that one guy? And we're like, what one guy? He goes, that guy from, I think he's from Mexico. And we're like, no, what, what guy are you talking about? He goes, that guy. He goes, do you remember we were doing that show and someone went in and went to see the show and we went, you mean the half beard guy? You're talking about the half beard guy? <laughs> Leave with that. Say, hey, you That's know right. the half beard guy? Start with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is why, this is why Mr. Lovick here has, uh, uh, we are all more alert when danger is present. And uh, I can remember when after one of our shows, Rob, we were, we were leaving the Peller and just happened to be that Derek Hughes and Handsome Jack had seen that show. So we weren't getting very far at all. They stopped us with notes. They said, you need to make the Rubik's Cube come back. You, you, you hypnotized them at the beginning and then you need to do that again at the end. And then we need to make that thing materialize. And so it turned into a rehearsal. So that's great. <laughs> Well, one thing, but, David, I, I, I think this applies to everybody, but magic set tends to be a solitary art form where you feel like you're going at it alone. But what I'm gathering from all of you guys is in a way, Rob has sort of formed a band again. Um, does, does that spirit, would you say the spirit that sort of got, you know, Possum Dixon at its height when it's touring as a band, do you feel like there's a similar sense of, of brotherhood amongst you guys? 100%. I mean, it's without without the pain of, of, of being in a band and stuck in a band you know, <laughs> for three months, you don't have to drive in a van together. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're spitballing. You're looking for the best solution to create a problems, and that's that's what all this stuff is. I mean, really, at the end of the day, you're you're trying to figure out, you know, the best the best light for any given trick, joke. Find your light, speak the words loud, all that stuff. I mean, it's really you know, we're help we're we're helping each other. It's community, and that yeah, that's definitely something that comes from. Which is which is unique, by the way, because uh, I used to do nothing but plays, and I remember I did the play Lost in Yonkers three times when I first got out of school, when I when I got out of theater school. You think and I did one of the plays? Find it. What'd you say? <laughs> I said but, after three times, you think you would find Yonkers? You, you, one would think, and so the cast changed because the production went to another theater. Anyway, the point is, I got another little brother who played my little brother in the play, and so with the new actor, I, I remember giving him notes. I said, "Well, you're not." We're not really getting a laugh on this line, but we, I mean, I just did this play for three months at a different theater. So I've got an idea, you know, if you say the line, maybe like this. And actually another actress who was playing the lead uh, said to me, what did you say? And I said, well, I was just, I, I mean, we were just talking. I thought we'd maybe give a little note to, to Chris here. And she said, you go to the stage manager. And as a matter of fact, you don't ever give another actor a note. And I thought, well, Okay, all right, you know, but I mean, it's not like this in every art form that people are open to this and that people are want to collaborate and that people want to learn. That's rare. Yeah. But I'll take one step further. In our world of our group of friends and kind of colleagues, yes, all of these people are open-minded and we all kind of go, yeah, we want we want the best. Not every magician is gonna, you know, you you don't you can't you can't walk into many yeah. magicians 
Christian can just hey, I got a little note for you. All receive notes that we did not ask for. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We did not want to hear them from. I think that within our little within our sort of, you know, with with our within yeah. our group, it's very it's very open minded and you've got people that really yeah. do are, are, are open-minded in the best way and, and willing to listen. Yeah, 20 years ago, I used to do that all the time. I'd go up after seeing an act and go, you know what? And then I realized problems in other people's acts aren't my problem. And so I don't do that anymore, except to friends and colleagues that I trust and trust me. And I know that you know my feedback is welcome, but I, I don't do that at all anymore. And, and you had mentioned when you introduced me that you read that little blurb from, um, uh, the magazine about how I will not hesitate to tell somebody what's what. And it's not just about, you know, your act. It's about your life too, because you mentioned the story about Rob getting shot and 33 years later, having the bullet removed from his arm. Right after that happened, I was with Rob and he was talking to somebody he goes, and Rob said, Hey, I, I'm sorry. I couldn't do whatever. I couldn't meet you last week or I couldn't call you whatever. He goes, I was having a medical procedure done and went, what? A medical? No, you had a bullet removed. You don't say I had a medical procedure. You, you say, I had a bullet taken out of my arm. You lead with that, you moron. What is wrong with you? <laughs> Again, it's a, it's a gentle touch. I don't know if you've detected that. It's a gentle touch. Of, sort, of like when, sort of like when somebody says, hey, go be nervous someplace else, pal. A gentle touch. Just what you want to hear before the show. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. Is there anything in your act, David, that you would think that you would consider, uh, oh, this is a moment that Lovick affected or, or that Rob affected? Uh, well, like I said, we it, we have this exchange all the time mm. of, of, of uh, it's OK to, to talk about this and to give notes. It's not going to get better any other way. Um, let me see. I'm trying to. Uh, yeah, actually, actually, yes. Uh, one time I was performing in the palace and Lovick came backstage. And this is before I had started collaborating with Rob. One of the first times I got performed, uh, got booked in the palace, and handsome Jack came back and said, "You said you know you're working way too hard." <laughs> I said, "What? What, what do you mean? Uh, you know, what, why am I working way too hard? You know, like like nothing dies harder than a bad idea." <laughs> I, I've got a plan. Every single show, I'll force a different card. You're working way too hard. He comes back. I'm not gonna. I don't want to give the trick away, but he, he picks up some of my props and he goes, "You know." It's a different audience every time. Nobody cares what the card is. Why are you memorizing a different set of cards every time? Make it the same every time. No one cares. And he was right. <laughs> Actually, uh, Handsome Jack had a full head of hair, and then I gave him the exact <laughs> You're working well, way too hard. Yeah, well, I mean, it's little things like that. I mean, if you, if you work in the palace and you see some of these guys have to reset their, to reset takes them 45 minutes. Yeah. I mean, uh, anything, anything that you can streamline you're right. And so I think about that all the time. Is there some way that I could just make this a simpler thing? Because the audience can't relate to the negative. They can't relate to what's not there. They can only relate to what you show them. This so if you, if you don't have extra props, if you don't have extra moments, if you don't have extra words, they're not going to know. They'll probably, it'll probably be better. You know, This anyway. story will probably only mean anything to people who've seen David Kovac work. And David is a really great performer, is really funny but he's got an energy unlike anybody you, you've ever seen. Uh, he's like, he's like, he stepped out in 1935, you know, uh, and hundred miles. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Does this suit make me look dead? <laughs> so, so you, you, uh, Harrison talked about all the people Rob has worked with in the Peller. 
And I've seen Rob with lots of performers in the pillar. And Rob is always the weird guy between the duo. And the first time I saw Rob and Kovac work in the pillar, I went backstage and went up to Rob and I said, I never thought I'd see you in the pillar. And the <laughs> other performer would be the weird guy. <laughs> Thanks. For that, I'm going to show you my owl mug. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Uh, as, we're, as we're beginning to wrap this up, we have a, um, a little bit more time. So if you are watching right now live, um, please uh, start sending your questions into the comments if you haven't already. We're going to try to get to as many of them as we can. Um, and uh, before we get to that, though, um, David and uh, John, while I have you, um, any, any parting thoughts about working with Rob and what Rob uh, has taught you or where you think people can learn from, from Rob? Well, just like I alluded to earlier, work every day, trying, you know, just over the years, Rob was like this every day till he was, he was like way, way, way down here. And then boom, he's in the stratosphere because he was willing to put the work in and listen to people who, you know, could, could help him. Uh, there's no better advice than that is just put in the work over time and do, and do as many shows as you can. It's, it's the standard advice, but he's the living example of that. One piece of advice that's hard to give during a pandemic, but, uh, well, yeah, <laughs> this pandemic is not forever. <laughs> exactly. No, it, it's not, it's not forever. Um, it's not forever. I agree. And I think also surrounding yourself with people who are better than what you do. Uh, than you are at what you do is very important. And these guys are the best. So I'm, I'm really grateful to, to be here and really overjoyed to see some friendly faces again. It's, it's really wonderful. So I hope if you encounter these characters that you take the time to learn from them and, and uh, then we'll, we'll all hang out. It'd be great. I finally, by the way, been able to put the two photos together. There we go. In case people were wondering what Hollywood yeah. looked like in the 40s, we have yeah. this uh, silent film now, the complete cast. And and as has Rob as Rob has said, that photo of Griffith and Clementine was way better than the act ever was. <laughs> True story. Okay, because it's a fantastic photo, and that was the first time I ever saw Rob. Was I saw Griffith and Clementine, and it's like it's like you know the first magic act you ever put put together because that's literally what it was. Um, so everyone enjoy that photo because uh, you're never going to see that act, and that's probably for the best. Well, David and John, AKA Handsome Jack, uh, thank you so much for joining us. You can buy John Luck's fantastic book, which is now available in Japanese. So if Max Maven, if you're watching, this is your chance, Steve Max Maven. Yeah, Max Maven and Shudagawa, get on it now, it's in Japanese. <laughs> uh, thank you guys so much for joining, I really, really appreciate it, David and John, so good to see you guys. Stay safe and stay well. Oh, great. Nice to good, see you. Good, good seeing all, all, all three of you. Uh, we are now in, uh, I, I, I don't know very much about sports, but I believe in soccer, it's known as stoppage time. So we're going to try to answer as many audience questions as we can. Um, yeah. Erica Larson has a question, Ooh. which is, who is Rob's dream guest for Other Side? Uh, you do have your show on YouTube. Uh, you've had Jack Black. You've had uh, incredible guests. But who's your dream guest that you haven't had yet? Um, boy, that's a good question. Uh, Fred, Fred, well, I, I hate to say this because he, he recently moved to the other side, Fred Willard, the great comedian Fred Willard was somebody that I was kind of chatting with. Um, I wanted, I, I think Paul Rubens is up there with on, on my list of dream guests um, as as Cassandra Peterson would, is also uh, among them. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like Erica could help with that. I feel like this is that, that I feel like this could be the beginning of something. Um, Another question uh, is from uh, somebody that I've hung out at the castle with, Rob Altunis. Uh, some would say you portray an uncomfortable character on stage. How do you maintain this while making sure your audience isn't too uncomfortable? Good question, Rob. Uh, it's a balance. You you have to read it. You, you just have to be there and, and, and read it because too uncomfortable means I don't want to be here. Too uncomfortable means th this isn't working for me as an art as an art thing in a movie or in a play or whatever. So you, it's a, it's a, it's a fine line. You've got to know, you got to, you got to, you got to know where to balance it. And it's something that you've got to intuit. Yeah. I think a lot of that is, is there's always, there's the surface level of what it seems like sometimes an act that seems chaotic is actually very controlled. And sometimes something that seems uncomfortable is so it, it's so professionally uncomfortable that everybody is comfortable because they know the train is still on the tracks. Exactly. Yeah, and only you know where where to push, you know, how to navigate that. Uh, and a TikTok star is in the building. I don't know if you're on TikTok, but uh, Michael Rayner, TikTok star uh, and a fantastic performer, he said, how did the Unholy Three poster get in forgetting Sarah Marshall? Oh, that's a good question, Michael. Uh, first of all, thanks for watching, Michael. Good, good knowing you out there. Um, so... Forgetting Sarah Marshall was a film from 2003 or 2004 from Judd Apatow. I think that was his movie. Judd Apatow is a big magic fan. And in his previous film or films, uh, one of them being uh, The 40-Year-Old Virgin. I'm sure most of you have seen that. If you haven't, do yourself a favor. It's a great pandemic comedy classic. Uh, he's got a, there's a Doug Henning poster in Steve Carell's room. He comes and he shuts the door and there's this great sort of one sheet, you know, real, a uh, high cool era of, of Henning, you know, floating on a rainbow or whatever. So he had this theme. Um, there was a Blackstone poster in a, one of his previous films. I can't remember which one it was. So I, I'm assuming he went to the Stenon Theater and saw Unholy Three and grabbed the poster. Maybe he just nabbed it off the wall. Maybe one of his production designers grabbed it. But I, I would I would like to think that because he he was a Magic fan that he maybe saw that show and grabbed it. And did you know that was in the background uh, or was that something that you only found out while watching the movie? Uh, I still haven't seen the movie. So I, I don't, uh, I don't know. Um, so I've, I've been informed by, by lots of people when it came we'll make, out. We'll make a documentary about it called forgetting, forgetting Sarah Marshall. Exactly. Forgetting the unholy three. Uh, Benjamin Strader writes, what's the most challenging thing that's ever happened during the seances at the castle? Oh God, uh, that's a good question. I, I think when, oh God, this one, well, uh, one night, uh, a woman was smoking cigarettes in there and she, and didn't want to listen to the simple message that this is, you can't smoke in here. And she's like, I know, and didn't quite want to understand that. Um, that. That was one for sure. The other one is people, when people really wanted to believe and look into my eyes and be like, Hey, I need you to come over to my house on Sunday and contact grandpa or my brother who's gone or whatever. And that's, you know, that's, that's where, um, you know, you have to draw the line between I'm here for entertainment. I'm, I'm a performer like all these other guys. I, I, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but yet for some reason they think that once they believe, you know, they, they, it's the old adage, if you believe you will receive. And people think that you are some kind of a soothsayer. They really like, I know, but, but can you still come over and do a seance at my house? And like, 
<laughs> those were always the moments where I was like, oh boy, this is a this is sort of a shaky ground in a way. Do you find your, your audience interactions after shows are weird? Because Odd Man is a very distinct character. He can be a little bit scary and intense. Uh, that's not offstage your your. A, a total sweetheart, not to ruin the illusion, but he is one of the nicest people I've ever met. Um, do you find that some people are scared to approach you after a show? For sure, hundred um, percent. They, they, you know, just like I, when you know, you see any performer, if you believe in it, it's a great testament to me that if they are standoffish or like looking at me like I have two heads, I went, oh, I've done my job because they think that I'm that person. Um, although I don't, you know, make any claims or anything, and. It's nice of you to say that I'm a nice person. I, I try to be uh, uh, respectable and nice to people when I can, but there there are um, times when I can't do that. Uh, there's a, a question earlier on um, asking you to talk about performing for Michael Jackson. I think it was actually for his his uh, his kid. I, I, believe, I think that was one of the few children's birthday parties you've ever performed. Correct. Um, yeah, I got the best, one of the greatest phone calls in my life. Like probably 15, 17 years ago. Um, uh, my buddy Roy Johns from the performance art group, The, the Mums, said, hey, there's a gig. It's Saturday. I know it's Saturday, but it's last minute. Can you come? It's like, no, I can't. It wasn't like some huge paying thing or anything, but when he told me who it was, I was packing my stuff and dying to get over there. I have had a obsession. Uh, I should say past tense. I don't anymore, but I did have a massive obsession with the transformation of the person that was Michael Jackson since the eighties, um, cut out magazine articles, taped them to the wall, kind of like just, it was like Charles Manson and Michael Jackson. I couldn't, and Corey Feldman, I like all three, those three were just like, they were just so compelling. I couldn't like, I always had to know what they were doing. Anyway, got the call, went down and the party consists of three people. It's Michael Paris and uh, blanket, you know, <laughs> It was really weird doing my act for three people uh, and helicopters are flying overhead. And it was like one of the and most- And is this the act that, that we've, we've seen you do? Is this is this like classics of Brecky or is there any modifications for, for a oh, kid? Oh, it was, it was weirded up. You know, it was like, ooh, <laughs> let's, let's give them something extra. You know, like it was, I, I think he was really kind of like, whoa, they got, I don't know where they got this guy from. He's pretty out there. Um, um, I did get to dance for him, which to me was the highlight was like the kind of shimmy and like really hide the one and really do a real special kind of avant jump around dance because i know that like not that i was trying to outdance michael jackson or anything but like i wanted to entertain him you know and i, I felt like i i did that it's pretty cool yeah and one of the questions that i had on my list that i wanted to uh get to before we go and then we'll get to our final question which i ask every act uh on the show um but you talked about art tears and i think that's a really good concept and one that um, I think is good for the audience. Because the last question is, what should young magician, what, what advice would you have for young magicians? So wrapping into that, um, can you tell us what art tiers are and why they're so important? Sure, I mean, I've, I've talked so much about um, like not being you know, not a fish to water in, in this art form and, and how hard work is like the result of anything I've ever had success from has been, you know, um, because I've, I've, I've worked extra hard to do it, right? So everybody sees your, your successes. Oh, there, here's this fully formed character. This guy got awards or he got to perform for Michael Jackson. Like they just think you won the game of life. But what they don't see is like the cutting room floor where every, every, all, all of the stuff where you've 
you poured your hat, you know, you, you spilled hours that, well, I won't say spilled or wasted, but like you spent all of this time working on stuff that didn't work. Think about those routines in your own act. Oh my God. And then you wanted to work and you've worked it for sometimes months, years, weeks, whatever. And you, 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 you dream of this stuff and you, it's in your blood and you can feel it. And then you go out and try it, it doesn't work. Those are your art tears. When things don't work and you're crying, it's not like losing, like your dog gets hit by a car. It's not that kind of thing. It's the, it's the tears of, of the loss of losing a concept, something that felt like was really valuable to you that you don't have a use for. Um, because I think art tears come back to you in different ways. You know, sometimes it's a thread of something that might, a year later, you might understand it differently and be able to interpret it and, and find a purpose for it. Yeah, and I love that because you describe art tears also as, normally tears are sad uh, and you feel bad about them, but art tears are something to be celebrated because it means you've, you've done something. Precisely, That's and I should add that. Is, uh, art tears are something to, to, be, to be proud of and know that they're a result of something that, that, that will, that they've already paid off. When you, when you cry art tears, it's because you've worked, you've, you've put hard work into something and that's nothing to, you know, cry about. Yeah, and I, I might end up crying art tears because that might be the best. I, mean, I should just end there. That's a perfect button. But I do ask every person that's been on the show, uh, we're on episode 23, because uh, this is airing for the International Brotherhood of Magicians. There are young magicians who are watching, who are inspired by you, who uh, want to be Zabraki. Hopefully not actually uh, word for word Zabraki, but want to be a performer of your caliber when they, when they uh, reach that point. What advice do you have for those young performers? Work hard. Be punk. Find your own way to do things. Don't listen to everybody. You know, stay true to to, to your core values of, of what you want to do and try to stay off the internet as much as you can. <laughs> yeah, unless to watch this show. Uh <laughs> I didn't watch this show and listen to these words. <laughs> but then log off immediately. Exactly. Watch my TV show, my book, me, 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 me. <laughs> um, yeah. No, just find your own way to do things and it's so easy to it, it's so easy for me to sit here and say that you know um and so hard to do so just know that when you're when you go oh, yeah okay I, i'm going to take the advice and then you're staring at a blank piece of paper for a month that something will appear and the right thing will appear if you continue to work at it don't quit don't quit that's it i mean everyone says that but don't quitting is so it's such a loser thing no, I love that. I mean, I think that's fantastic advice. Uh, Rob, I cannot thank you enough. It is so good to see you. Uh, Me too, Harrison. You too, so And nice to see you in a, in a shirt. Normally when we see each other, it's for virtual yoga. That's, that's true. All buttoned down today. And, uh, and and thank you. I love your show. It's, it's, I think you're doing a great service for the magic community. And uh, I look forward to seeing you in person when, when the time's right. Absolutely. Mwah. I love you, man. Thank you so much. Uh, you. If you want to follow Rob Zabrecki on Twitter, go to at Rob Zabrecki. If you'd like to buy this incredible book, it's right over here. Um, Strange Cures by Rob Zabrecki, available on Amazon or all major booksellers. And of course, you can check out Other Side with Zabrecki on YouTube. Just type in Other Side with Zabrecki when you go to youtube.com and you can pull up um, some incredible videos. Uh, they're really fun, really great. Um, Rob, thank you so much for joining and hopefully I'll see you soon. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. See you later. Take care. Uh, amazing. Oh my gosh. Uh, this has been uh, an incredible episode. I can't thank Rob enough for, for being a part of this. Uh, also our special guest, Handsome Jack, John Lovick, whose book is also amazing, Handsome Jack, etc. by John Lovick, which is available from Vanishing Inc. and now in Japanese. Um, also in Vanishing Inc. is an astonishing essay 
by Rob Zabrecki. Uh, it is an astonishing essay, but that is also the name of the series, Astonishing Essays. You can uh, purchase that as well. Um, those have a lot of things that are in uh, the lecture notes. Um, so make sure you check all of those things out. A huge thank you to everybody who's watching. Erica Larson, Michael Rayner, um, people from literally all around the world. We have a Russian viewer, might be our first Russian viewer ever. Um, viewers from Australia, Florida, stay safe. Uh, we have Canada in the house as well. Thank you guys so much for watching. Uh, please make sure you download uh, the old episodes as a podcast as well on Apple Music or iTunes. Just go to whobooksit.com. Uh, That's pretty easy to remember. Whobooksit.com. I'll put it up on the screen. There we go. Uh, and it's every Wednesday at 4 p.m. if you are on the West Coast, 7 p.m. if you're on the East Coast. And a huge thank you to Alexander, our outgoing president of the International Brotherhood of Magicians. Uh, and our incoming president, a huge congratulations to Stephen Bergazzi, who is taking over. Um, and you can join this great organization, magician.org slash join dash the dash IBM slash join. Next week's episode is Steve Valentine. I'm super excited to talk to him. I think it's going to be a really great episode. So make sure you tune in. Same time, same place, every Wednesday, 7 p.m. or 4 p.m. Uh, my name is Harrison Greenbaum. Uh, a huge thank you, by the way, to Benjamin Budzak, who did the animation way back in the day. And I think some in earlier programs, but I want to thank him one more time because the animation is really cool. And that's how we're going to end the episode is with that animation. Thanks so much for watching. My name is Harrison Greenbaum, and this has been Who Books That? Who Books That? I'm singing a theme song, singing a theme song because nothing's recorded. Who Books That? With Harrison Greenbaum. Thanks for watching. Why am I singing this song? <laughs>